Chapter Nineteen, Part One of Desperate Remedies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shi Pingning. Desperate Remedies by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Nineteen: The Events of a Day and Night. Part One. One. March the twenty-first morning next morning the steward went out as usual he shortly told his companion anne that he had almost matured their scheme and that they would enter upon the details of it when he came home at night the fortunate fact that the rector's letter did not require an immediate answer would give him time to consider anne seaway then began her duties in the house besides daily superintending the cook and housemaid one of these duties was at rare intervals to dust manston's office with her own hands a servant being supposed to disturb the books and papers unnecessarily she softly wandered from table to shelf with the duster in her hand afterwards standing in the middle of the room and glancing around to discover if any noteworthy collection of dust had still escaped her her eyes fell upon a faint layer which rested upon the ledge of an old-fashioned chestnut cabinet of french renaissance workmanship placed in a recess by the fireplace at a height of about four feet from the floor the upper portion of the front receded forming the ledge alluded to on which opened at each end two small doors the centre space between them being filled out by a panel of similar size making the third of three squares the dust on the ledge was nearly on a level with the woman's eye and though insignificant in quantity showed itself distinctly on account of this obliquity of vision now opposite the central panel concentric quarter circles were traced in the deposited film expressing to her that this panel too was a door like the others that it had lately been opened and had skimmed the dust with its lower edge at last then her curiosity was slightly rewarded for the right of the matter was that anne had been incited to this exploration of manston's office rather by a wish to know the reason of his long seclusion here after the arrival of the rector's letter and their subsequent discourse than by any immediate desire for cleanliness still there would have been nothing remarkable to anne in this sight but for one recollection manston had once casually told her that each of the two side lockers included half the middle space the panel of which did not open and was only put in for symmetry it was possible that he had opened this compartment by candlelight the preceding night or he would have seen the marks in the dust and effaced them that he might not be proved guilty of telling her an untruth she balanced herself on one foot and stood pondering she considered that it was very vexing and unfair in him to refuse her all knowledge of his remaining secrets 
under the peculiar circumstances of her connection with him she went close to the cabinet as there was no keyhole the door must be capable of being opened by the unassisted hand the circles in the dust told her at which edge to apply her force here she pulled with the tips of her fingers but the panel would not come forward she fetched a chair and looked over the top of the cabinet but no bolt knob or spring was to be seen oh never mind she said with indifference i'll ask him about it and he will tell me down she came and turned away then looking back again she thought it was absurd such a trifle should puzzle her she retraced her steps and opened a drawer beneath the ledge of the cabinet pushing in her hand and feeling about on the under side of the board here she found a small round sinking and pressed her finger into it nothing came of the pressure she withdrew her hand and looked at the tip of her finger it was marked with the impress of the circle and in addition a line ran across it diametrically how stupid of me it is the head of a screw whatever mysterious contrivance had originally existed for opening the puny cupboard of the cabinet it had at some time been broken and this rough substitute provided stimulated curiosity would not allow her to recede now she fetched a screwdriver withdrew the screw pulled the door open with a penknife and found inside a cavity about ten inches square the cavity contained letters from different women with unknown signatures christian names only surnames being despised in paphos letters from his wife eunice letters from anne herself including that she wrote in answer to his advertisement a small pocket-book sundry scraps of paper the letters from the strange women with pet names she glanced carelessly through and then put them aside they were too similar to her own regretted delusion and curiosity requires contrast to excite it the letters from his wife were next examined they were dated back as far as eunice's first meeting with manston and the early ones before their marriage contained the usual pretty effusions of women at such a period of their existence some little time after he had made her his wife and when he had come to knapwater the series began again and now their contents arrested her attention more forcefully she closed the cabinet carried the letters into the parlour reclined herself on the sofa and carefully perused them in the order of their dates john street october seventeenth eighteen sixty four my dearest husband i received your hurried line of yesterday and was of course content with it but why don't you tell me your exact address instead of that post-office budmouth this matter is all a mystery to me and i ought to be told every detail i cannot fancy it is the same kind of occupation you have been used to hitherto your command that i am to stay here a while until you can see how things look and can arrange to send for me 
i must necessarily abide by but if as you say a married man would have been rejected by the person who engaged you and that hence my existence must be kept a secret until you have secured your position why did you think of going at all the truth is this keeping our marriage a secret is troublesome vexing and wearisome to me i see the poorest woman in the street bearing her husband's name openly living with him in the most matter-of-fact ease and why shouldn't i i wish i was back again in liverpool to-day i bought a great waterproof cloak i think it is a little too long for me but it was cheap for one of such a quality the weather is gusty and dreary until this morning i had hardly set foot outside the door since you left please do tell me when i'm to come very affectionately yours eunice john street october twenty five eighteen sixty four my dear husband why don't you write do you hate me i have not had the heart to do anything this last week that i your wife should be in this strait and my husband well to do i have been obliged to leave my first lodging for debt among other things they charged me for a lot of brandy which i am quite sure i did not taste then i went to camberwell and was found out by them i went away privately from thence and changed my name the second time i am now mrs rondley but the new lodging was the wretchedest and dearest i ever set foot in and i left it after being there only a day i am now at number twenty in the same street that you left me in originally all last night the sash of my window rattled so dreadfully that i could not sleep but i had not energy enough to get out of bed to stop it this morning i have been walking i don't know how far but far enough to make my feet ache i have been looking at the outside of two or three of the theatres but they seem forbidding if i regard them with the eye of an actress in search of an engagement though you said i was to think no more of the stage i believe you would not care if you found me there but i am not an actress by nature and art will never make me one i am too timid and retiring i was intended for a cottager's wife i certainly shall not try to go on the boards again whilst i am in this strange place the idea of being brought on as far as london and then left here alone why didn't you leave me in liverpool perhaps you thought i might have told somebody that my real name was mrs manston as if i had a living friend to whom i could impart it no such good fortune in fact my nearest friend is no nearer than what most people would call a stranger but perhaps i ought to tell you that a week before i wrote my last letter to you after wishing that my uncle and aunt in philadelphia the only near relatives i had were still alive i suddenly resolved to send a line to my cousin james who i believe is still living in that neighbourhood he has never seen me since we were babies together i did not tell him of my marriage 
because I thought you might not like it, and I gave my real maiden name and an address at the post office here. But God knows if the letter will ever reach him. Do write me an answer and send something. Your affectionate wife, Eunice. Friday, October 28. My dear husband, the order for ten pounds had just come, and I am truly glad to get it. But why will you write so bitterly? Ah, well, if I had only had the money, I should have been on my way to America by this time. So don't think I want to bore you of my own free will. Who can you have met with at that new place? Remember I say this in no malignant tone, but certainly the facts go to prove that you have deserted me. You are inconstant. I know it. Oh, why are you so? Now I have lost you, I love you in spite of your neglect. I am weakly fond. That's my nature. I fear that, upon the whole, my life has been wasted. I know there's another woman supplanting me in your heart. Yes, I know it. Come to me. Do come. Eunice. 41 Charles Square, Hoxton, November 19. Dear Aeneas, here I am back again after my visit. Why should you have been so enraged at my finding your exact address? Any woman would have tried to do it. You know she would have, and no woman would have lived under assumed names so long as I did. I repeat that I did not call myself Mrs. Manston until I came to this lodging at the beginning of this month. What could you expect? A helpless creature, I, had not fortune favoured me unexpectedly. Banished as I was from your house at dawn, I did not suppose the indignity was about to lead to important results. But in crossing the park, I overheard the conversation of a young man and woman who had also risen early. I believe her to be the girl who has worn you away from me. Well, their conversation concerned you and Miss Aldercliffe very peculiarly. The remarkable thing is that you yourself, without knowing it, told me of what, added to their conversation, completely reveals a secret to me that neither of you understand. Two negatives never made such a telling positive before. One clue more, and you will see it. A single consideration prevents my revealing it, just one doubt as to whether your ignorance was real and was not feigned to deceive me. Civility now, please. Eunice. 41 Charles Square, Tuesday, November 22. My darling husband, Monday will suit me excellently for coming. I have acted exactly up to your instructions and have sold my rubbish at the broker's in the next street. All this movement and bustle is delightful to me after the weeks of monotony I have endured. It is a relief to wish the place good-bye. London always has seemed so much more foreign to me than Liverpool. The midday train on Monday will do nicely for me. I shall be anxiously looking out for you on Sunday night. I hope so much that you are not angry with me for writing to Miss Aldercliffe. You are not, dear, are you? Forgive me. 
your loving wife eunice this was the last of the letters from the wife to the husband one other in mrs manston's handwriting and in the same packet was differently addressed three tranters inn carriford november twenty eighth eighteen sixty four dear cousin james thank you indeed for answering my letter so promptly when i called at the post office yesterday i did not in the least think there would be one but i must leave this subject i write again at once under the strangest and saddest conditions it is possible to conceive i did not tell you in my last that i was a married woman don't blame me it was my husband's influence i hardly know where to begin my story i had been living apart from him for a time then he sent for me this was last week and i was glad to go to him then this is what he did he promised to fetch me and did not leaving me to do the journey alone he promised to meet me at the station here he did not i went on through the darkness to his house and found his door locked and himself away from home i have been obliged to come here and i write to you in a strange room in a strange village inn i choose the present moment to write to drive away my misery sorrow seems a sort of pleasure when you detail it on paper poor pleasure though but this is what i want to know and i am ashamed to tell it i would gladly do as you say and come to you as a housekeeper but i have not the money even for a steerage passage james do you want me badly enough do you pity me enough to send it i could manage to subsist in london upon the proceeds of my sale for another month or six weeks will you send it to the same address at the post office but how do i know that you thus the letter ended from creases in the paper it was plain that the writer having got so far had become dissatisfied with her production and had crumpled it in her hand was it to write another or not to write at all the next thing anne seaway perceived was that the fragmentary story she had coaxed out of manston to the effect that his wife had left england for america might be truthful according to two of these letters corroborated by the evidence of the railway porter and yet at first he had sworn in a passion that his wife was most certainly consumed in the fire if she had been burned this letter written in her bedroom and probably thrust into her pocket when she relinquished it would have been burnt with her nothing was surer than that why then did he say she was burnt and never show anne herself this letter the question suddenly raised a new and much stranger one kindling a burst of amazement in her how did manston become possessed of this letter that fact of possession was certainly the most remarkable revelation of all in connection with this epistle and perhaps had something to do with his reason for never showing it to her she knew by several proofs that before his marriage with cytheria and up to the time of the porter's confession manson believed 
honestly believed that cytheria would be his lawful wife and hence of course that his wife eunice was dead so that no communication could possibly have passed between his wife and himself from the first moment that he believed her dead on the night of the fire to the day of his wedding and yet he had that letter how soon afterwards could they have communicated with each other the existence of the letter as much as or more than its contents implying that mrs manston was not burnt his belief in that calamity must have terminated at the moment he obtained possession of the letter if no earlier was then the only solution to the riddle that anne could discern the true one that he had communicated with his wife somewhere about the commencement of anne's residence with him or at any time since it was the most unlikely thing on earth that a woman who had forsaken her husband should countenance his scheme to personify her whether she were in america in london or in the neighbourhood of knapwater then came the old and harassing question what was manston's real motive in risking his name on the deception he was practising as regarded anne it could not be as he had always pretended mere passion her thoughts had reverted to mr roundham's letter asking for proofs of her identity with the original mrs manston she could see no loophole of escape for the man who supported her true in her own estimation his worst alternative was not so very bad after all the getting the name of libertine a possible appearance in the divorce or some other court of law in a question of damages such an exposure might hinder his worldly progress for some time yet to him this alternative was apparently terrible as death itself she restored the letters to their hiding-place scanned anew the other letters and memoranda from which she could gain no fresh information fastened up the cabinet and left everything in its former condition her mind was ill at ease more than ever she wished that she had never seen manston where the person suspected of mysterious moral obliquity is the possessor of great physical and intellectual attractions the mere sense of incongruity adds an extra shudder to dread the man's strange bearing terrified anne as it had terrified cytheria for with all the woman anne's faults she had not descended to such depths of depravity as to willingly participate in crime she had not even known that a living wife was being displaced till her arrival at knapwater put retreat out of the question and had looked upon personation simply as a mode of subsistence a degree better than toiling in poverty and alone after a bustling and somewhat pampered life as housekeeper in a gay mansion non illa colo calathisiva mineva e for eminius asueta manus two afternoon 
mr rungham and edward springrove had by this time set in motion a machinery which they hoped to find working out important results the rector was restless and full of meditation all the following morning he was plain even to the servants about him that springrove's communication wore a deeper complexion than any that had been made to the old magistrate for many months or years past the fact was that having arrived at this stage of existence in which the difficult intellectual feat of suspending one's judgment becomes possible he was now putting it in practice though not without the penalty of watchful effort it was not till the afternoon that he determined to call on his relative miss aldercliffe and cautiously probe her knowledge of the subject occupying him so thoroughly cytheria he knew was still beloved by this solitary woman miss aldercliffe had made several private inquiries concerning her former companion and there was ever a sadness in her tone when the young lady's name was mentioned which showed that from whatever cause the elder cytherea's renunciation of her favourite and namesake proceeded it was not from indifference to her fate have you ever had any reason for supposing your steward anything but an upright man he said to the lady never the slightest have you said she reservedly well i have what is it i can say nothing plainly because nothing is proved but my suspicions are very strong do you mean that he was rather cool towards his wife when they were first married and that it was unfair in him to leave her i know he was but i think his recent conduct towards her has amply atoned for the neglect he looked miss aldercliffe full in the face it was plain that she spoke honestly she had not the slightest notion that the woman who lived with the steward might be other than mrs manston much less that a greater matter might be behind that's not it i wish it was no more my suspicion is first that the woman living at the old house is not mr manston's wife not mr manson's wife that is it miss aldercliffe looked blankly at the rector not mr manston's wife who else can she be she said simply an improper woman of the name of anne seaway mr rowham had in common with other people noticed the extraordinary interest of miss aldercliffe in the well-being of her steward and had endeavoured to account for it in various ways the extent to which she was shaken by his information whilst it proved that the understanding between herself and manston did not make her a sharer of his secrets also showed that the tie which bound her to him was still unbroken mr rungham had lately begun to doubt the latter fact and now on finding himself mistaken regretted that he had not kept his own counsel in this matter this it was too late to do and he pushed on with his proofs he gave miss aldercliffe in detail the grounds of his belief before he had done 
she recovered the cloak of reserve that she had adopted on his opening the subject i might possibly be convinced that you were in the right after such an elaborate argument she replied were it not for one fact which bears in the contrary direction so pointedly that nothing but absolute proof can turn it it is that there is no conceivable motive which could induce any sane man leaving alone a man of mr manston's clear-headedness and integrity to venture upon such an extraordinary course of conduct no motive on earth that was my own opinion till after the visit of a friend last night a friend of mine and poor little cytheria's ah and cytheria said miss aldercliffe catching at the idea raised by the name that he loved cytheria yes and loves her now wildly and devotedly i am as positive as that i breathe cytheria is years younger than mrs manston as i shall call her twice as sweet in disposition three times as beautiful would he have given her up quietly and suddenly for a common mr rangham your story is monstrous and i don't believe it she glowed in her earnestness the rector might now have advanced his second proposition the possible motive but for reasons of his own he did not very well madam i only hope that facts will sustain you in your belief ask him the question to his face whether the woman is his wife or no and see how he receives it i will to-morrow most certainly she said i always let these things die of wholesome ventilation as every fungus does but no sooner had the rector left her presence than the grain of mustard seed he had sown grew to a tree her impatience to set her mind at rest could not brook a night's delay it was with the utmost difficulty that she could wait till evening arrived to screen her movements immediately the sun had dropped behind the horizon and before it was quite dark she wrapped her cloak around her softly left the house and walked erect through the gloomy park in the direction of the old manor house the same minute saw two persons sit down in the rectory house to share the rector's usually solitary dinner one was a man of official appearance commonplace in all except his eyes the other was edward springrove the discovery of the carefully concealed letters rankled in the mind of anne seaway her woman's nature insisted that manston had no right to keep all matters connected with his lost wife a secret from herself perplexity had bred vexation vexation resentment curiosity had been continuous the whole morning this resentment and curiosity increased the steward said very little to his companion during their luncheon at midday he seemed reckless of appearances almost indifferent to whatever fate awaited him all his actions betrayed that something portentous was impending and still he explained nothing 
by carefully observing every trifling action as only a woman can observe them the thought at length dawned upon her that he was going to run away secretly she feared for herself her knowledge of law and justice was vague and she fancied she might in some way be made responsible for him in the afternoon he went out of the house again and she watched him drive away in the direction of the county town she felt a desire to go there herself and after an interval of half an hour followed him on foot notwithstanding the distance ostensibly to do some shopping one among her several trivial errands was to make a small purchase at the druggist's near the druggist's stood the county bank looking out of the shop window between the colored bottles she saw manston come down the steps of the bank in the act of withdrawing his hand from his pocket and pulling his coat close over its mouth it is an almost universal habit with people when leaving a bank to be carefully adjusting their pockets if they have been receiving money if they have been paying it in their hands swing laxly the steward had in all likelihood been taking money possibly on miss aldercliffe's account that was continual with him and he might have been removing his own as a man would do who was intending to leave the country three from five to eight o'clock p m anne reached home again in time to preside over preparations for dinner manston came in half an hour later the lamp was lighted the shutters were closed and they sat down together he was pale and worn almost haggard the meal passed off in almost unbroken silence when preoccupation withstands the inference of a social meal with one pleasant companion the mental scene must be surprisingly vivid just as she was rising a tap came to the door before a maid could attend to the knock manston crossed the room and answered it himself the visitor was miss aldercliffe manston instantly came back and spoke to anne in an undertone i should be glad if you could retire to your room for a short time it is a dry starlight evening she replied i will go for a little walk if your object is merely a private conversation with miss aldercliffe very well do there's no accounting for tastes he said a few commonplaces then passed between her and miss aldercliffe and anne went upstairs to bonnet and cloak herself she came down opened the front door and went out she looked around to realize the night it was dark mournful and quiet then she stood still from the moment that manston had requested her absence a strong and burning desire had prevailed in her to know the subject of miss aldercliffe's conversation with him simple curiosity was not entirely what inspired her her suspicions had been thoroughly aroused by the discovery of the morning a conviction that her future depended on her power to combat a man who in desperate circumstances would be far from a friend to her
prompted a strategic movement to acquire the important secret that was in handling now the woman thought and thought and regarded the dull dark trees anxiously debating how the thing could be done stealthily reopening the front door she entered the hall and advancing and pausing alternately came close to the door of the room in which miss aldercliffe and manston conversed nothing could be heard through the keyhole or panels at a great risk she softly turned the knob and opened the door to a width of about half an inch performing the act so delicately that three minutes at least were occupied in completing it at that instant miss aldercliffe said there's a draught somewhere the door is ajar i think and glided back under the staircase manston came forward and closed the door this chance was now cut off and she considered again the parlour or sitting-room in which the conference took place had the window shutters fixed on the outside of the window as is usual in the back portions of old country houses the shutters were hinged one on each side of the opening and met in the middle where they were fastened by a bolt passing continuously through them and the wood mullion within the bolt being secured on the inside by a pin which was seldom inserted till manston and herself were about to retire for the night sometimes not at all if she returned to the door of the room she might be discovered at any moment but could she listen at the window which overlooked a part of the garden never visited after nightfall she would be safe from disturbance the idea was worth a trial she glided round to the window took the head of the boat between her finger and thumb and softly screwed it round till it was entirely withdrawn from its position the shutters remained as before whilst where the boat had come out was now a shining hole three-quarters of an inch in diameter through which one might see into the middle of the room she applied her eye to the orifice miss aldercliffe and manston were both standing manston with his back to the window his companion facing it the lady's demeanour was severe condemnatory and haughty no more was to be seen and then turned sideways leaned with her shoulder against the shutters and placed her ear upon the hole you know where said miss aldercliffe and how could you a man act a double deceit like this men do strange things sometimes what was your reason come a mere whim i might even believe that if the woman were handsomer than cytheria or if you had been married some time to cytheria and had grown tired of her and can't you believe it too under these conditions that i married cytheria gave her up because i heard that my wife was alive found that my wife would not come to live with me and then not to let any woman i love so well as cytheria run any risk of being displaced and ruined in reputation should my wife ever think fit to return induced this woman to come to me as being better than no companion at all 
i cannot believe it your love for cytheria was not of such a kind as that excuse would imply it was cytheria or nobody with you as an object of passion you did not desire the company of this n seaway at all and certainly not so much as to madly risk your reputation by bringing her here in the way you have done i'm sure you didn't aeneas so am i he said bluntly miss aldercliffe uttered an exclamation of astonishment the confession was like a blow in its suddenness she began to reproach him bitterly and with tears how could you overthrow my plans disgrace the only girl i ever had any respect for by such inexplicable doings that woman must leave this place the country perhaps heavens the truth will leak out in a day or two she must do no such thing and the truth must be stifled somehow nobody knows how if i stay here or on any spot of the civilized globe as aeneas manston this woman must live with me as my wife or i am damned past redemption i will not countenance your keeping her whatever your motive may be you must do something he murmured you must yes you must i never will she said it is a criminal act he looked at her earnestly will you not support me through this deception if my very life depends upon it will you not nonsense life it will be a scandal to you but she must leave this place it will out sooner or later and the exposure had better come now manston repeated gloomily the same words my life depends upon your supporting me my very life he then came close to her and spoke into her ear while he spoke he held her head to his mouth with both his hands strange expressions came over her face the workings of her mouth were painful to observe still he held her and whispered on the only words that could be caught by anne seaway confused as her hearing frequently was by the moan of the wind and the waterfall in her outer ear were these of miss aldercliffe in tones which absolutely quivered they have no money what can they prove the listener tasked herself to the utmost to catch his answer but it was in vain end of chapter nineteen part one recording by shi ping ling